Hi there, and welcome to Power Play. I'm Vashi Capellos. Tonight, a special edition of our program on the eve of a very somber anniversary. Canada will continue to do whatever is necessary to ensure that Russia does not benefit from having illegally invaded One Ukraine. year ago, Ukraine was on the edge of invasion. Tonight, after a year of war, at least 8,000 civilians are dead, entire cities are destroyed, and millions of Ukrainians have had to flee their homes. In moments, we'll talk to Canada's ambassador in Kyiv and Ukraine's ambassador here in Ottawa, who will join us together. Then, an exclusive one-on-one -on -one with a leader on Russia's doorstep. Ukraine must win the war, this war and Putin must lose it. Latvia's Prime Minister on negotiations among allies to send fighter jets to Ukraine and Putin's most recent nuclear threat. All of that is ahead, plus a special edition of The Front Bench with this country's top foreign policy experts who will reflect on one year of the largest armed conflict in Europe since the Second World War. The consequences of Canadians not standing with Ukraine, of the world not standing with Ukraine right now, could be devastating and long-reaching for the entire planet. The world readies to mark a somber milestone in Ukraine. Tomorrow marks one year since Russia invaded Ukraine. And the United Nations just wrapped up a special session, voting on a motion calling for comprehensive, just and lasting peace in Ukraine. 141 countries voted for the motion. Seven countries, including Russia and Belarus, voted against it. 32 countries, including China, abstained. Prior to that vote, the Assembly debated the motion and what support for Ukraine should look like. Take a listen. Ukrainians, Russians, and people far beyond need peace. Therefore, I encourage you to vote yes for the adoption of the resolution which Slovakia strongly supports. The war in Ukraine sadly resembles the one in Croatia three decades ago. It has been a year of immense suffering, death, and destruction. Today, we gather here to call for peace. We all want peace in Ukraine. Or at least the overwhelming majority of us want peace in Ukraine. With me now, Canada's ambassador to Ukraine, Larissa Galadza, along with Ukraine's ambassador to Canada, Yulia Kovalev. Hello to both of you, ambassadors. Thank you very much for making the time today. Uh, ambassador Kovalev, I'll start with you. And just wanted to get a sense from you of how significant the vote at the UN this afternoon is from your perspective. Today, we have 141 countries who supported the resolution uh, that actually uh, support the peace formula of President Zelensky. And that is important for us that um, majority of the countries, the bigger majority of the countries uh, with the support of Ukraine showed not only the solidarity, but also they supported this 10 points plan of President Zelensky uh, that includes both the full restoration of the uh, territorial integrity of Ukraine, uh, important thing about the nuclear security, food security, but also another important thing that is justice. Because for us, it's both important to end the war with uh, keeping all of the Ukrainian territory within Ukraine and also to bring the justice after the war. 
Uh, Ambassador Galadza, I've listened to a number of leaders reflect on, on the marking of the one-year anniversary this week, starting off, of course, with Joe Biden, U.S. President Joe Biden in Ukraine over the weekend. And uh, what I keep hearing over and over is the degree to which allies are unified in their support of Ukraine and their rebuke, really, of Russia. Does the vote at the U.N. today underscore that for you? Absolutely, it does. Uh, and I think it comes uh, in a week uh, where the world needs to hear this message and Ukrainians need to hear this message. I consistently hear from Ukrainians that what allows them to keep going is the hope that they get because they haven't been left alone. The hope that they have because we are here with them physically in terms of the financial and humanitarian and, and military uh, support that we have provided over over the course of the last year in the visits that we've had in the past week, including from Canada's foreign minister. And uh, and then today, this 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 really important signal from from the General Assembly. Uh, Ambassador um, uh, Kovalev, on, uh, uh, yes, it was 141 countries who voted in favor. Uh, there were also vote countries I think we would expect to vote in, uh, alongside Russia. But then there are some who abstained and significantly, you know, countries like China, like India, who have uh, tried to navigate this as a so-called, uh, you know, on the so-called side of neutrality. Is there, is, does such a thing exist from, from where you sit? We see some of the countries that still are in neutrality and we are talking actively to many of them. We also see some countries who abstained last time and were in support of Ukraine this time. And that is part of our big diplomatic effort to knock to those countries and to explain that this is the uh, black and white situation where abstaining is actually supporting the aggressor. And with getting more and more support and talking and also engaging with our partners, especially to the countries with the global south, um, as we are trying to explain them that the big issue of food security is something what Russia created and forced by invading Ukraine. And this is where these countries, and specifically the low-income countries in, uh, in the African continent, suffer and their people suffer. Uh, although these countries are far away in terms of the distance from Ukraine. But the impact of the war, especially on the food security and the peak prices for food that we were witnessing last year was the direct consequences of Russian invasion. And so it's a, for the benefit of these countries and for the benefit of people, global economic growth, this to stand with Ukraine and support us. I think Ambassador Kovalev makes a good point, uh, Ambassador Galadza, about uh, some countries migrating positions. But when you think about countries like China and Iran, where there are very real concerns at this moment that they aren't really neutral, they may be abstaining, but they may also be considering or already supporting Russia in, in its efforts uh, to uh, wage war on Ukraine. Uh, how concerned from, from Canada's perspective um, are you about that and about what I mean, I mean, President uh, Putin announced a visit from President Xi Jinping uh, to Russia in the future. How, how much does that worry you? I think that we've always been worried about anything that could make this war go on longer. Uh, and so uh, we watch these things closely and the entire network of Canadian diplomats around the world uh, is working to do, as Ambassador Kovalev said, to shift uh, shift from support to abstention, uh, support for Russia to, uh, to, to through abstention to support for, for Ukraine. Uh, and so, so we're, we're, we're seeing that happen. 
happen. And, uh, and, and this is going to be, uh, this is, this is long-term work. Um, when we talk about the, the form that that support takes, Ambassador Kovalev, the last time I think you were sitting in that chair, we were discussing the possibility of tanks being supplied to Ukraine and the hesitancy of Germany at that point and your belief that allies would eventually come together and, and supply those. That, that did come to fruition. Now the conversation has migrated to what President Zelensky has said is most needed for the next phase of this war, the counteroffensive in the spring, and that is fighter jets. Um, I spoke to Poland's ambassador the other night who said uh, we're willing to supply them, but we are not, and, and sort of delineating from the tank situation, we are not willing to do it alone. Are you concerned about the prospect for allies getting on the same page with fighter jets, or do you anticipate it will turn out just like the tanks? Vashi, we, through this year, uh, of war, we went through was a different kind of the weapons from the messages of our partners that never it's too complicated. Ukrainians have not been trained; they don't know how to use these weapons to supplying these weapons. Uh, it was the same with NATO standard artillery, armed vehicles. That was with the same with tanks, and now we understand that. Uh, how to work, how to talk, and how to explain, because we very openly explain to our partners, especially uh, from the, our defense side, uh, ministers are talking, uh, and uh, diplomats are talking, and explaining why we need this. And uh, I'm very optimistic as well for the fighter jets. It just needs more time. The same story was with Leopard tanks. The Germany was saying that they will, they will supply them if any other country will supply them. Uh, then the UK government made first decision to supply NATO standard tanks. And then US announced that they will supply tanks. And then Germany announced. And then um, Canada announced. And many other countries joined the tank coalition. So now the next, our effort is to persuade and just explain why we need them. Because Russian missiles are still flying over Ukrainian territory and hit critical infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Our air is still not protected. And in order to be able to liberate the territories, to prepare and be able to move to counteroffensive operations, we need also the air shield. Ambassador Galadza, you're, you're in Kyiv. You, you would be acutely aware of exactly what Ambassador Kovalev just laid out. Do, do you understand the point that Ukraine is making that they need those fighter jets? Are you sympathetic to that point? I'm sympathetic, very sympathetic to Ukrainians who say they, that if we give them the tools, they will, uh, they will finish the job. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and the discussions uh, started last year in a very, very different place, and we've seen the same story repeat itself uh, throughout the year, where allies, Ukraine's closest partners, have done what's, uh, w what was necessary, uh, and, uh, and that's where we are today. And this is, this, the, the discussion on fighter jets is, is, is today's discussion. If I could follow up with you, Ambassador Gladza, on that, um, and, and I don't pretend to say that Canada has an arsenal. We, we know very, very well an arsenal of fighter jets to lend. But in other instances where we didn't have the equipment, for example, a missile defense system, Canada purchased one for Ukraine. Are there active conversations in the government of Canada about how it can be part of the conversation around supplying fighter jets to Ukraine? Canada's a really active participant in the Ramstein group uh, of, of, I think, over 40 countries now that regularly gets together uh, uh, with uh, the Ukrainian defense minister and military leadership to understand what Ukraine needs. And in those 40 countries, 
very much work together to uh, to optimize uh, what they have and to uh, to answer Ukraine's requests. Do you see, though, uh, Canada playing a role specifically in the request around fighter jets? Those requests all go back to Ottawa with Minister Anand, who participates in those discussions, and I know that she then has discussions in Ottawa. Absolutely. Okay, Ambassador Kovalev, last word to you, and I'm just going to jump off of what Ambassador Galadza said there. Uh, do you see Canada playing a role? I, again, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that, that we have a lot of fighter jets, but like I said, there have been other instances where Canada kind of got creative. Is the, the ask of, your, uh, of Ukraine for Canada to be involved in that discussion, in the next phase of the war? First of all, Russia, you've said very rightly, Canada has been first very supportive, that second very creative, and Canada joined all the uh, so-called military equipment coalitions that Ukraine created and advocated for. Uh, what is in reality how this dialogue is built, that the countries to whom we are talking in Canada is uh, active uh, participants in those talks, uh, try to find the place where a country can do uh, the most effective things. Where, uh, when it comes to Canada, Canada has been supportive, uh, especially on the armed vehicles, on the artillery, on the tanks. Um, and so we are trying to find now this place, how to make it uh, most efficient out of our discussion for the fighter jets. And this conversation is now going among many of the, the allies because mostly we are talking about F-16 fighter jets, uh, uh, that is what Canada does not have. Uh, so that, but there, the window for any creative decision, Ukraine, of course, will appreciate. I'm sure. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much, Ambassadors Kovalev and Galadz. I really appreciate you making the time on such an important day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Coming up, more on the next phase of Russia's war on Ukraine. After a quick break, our exclusive interview with Latvia's Prime Minister. We are back right after this. Russia's war on Ukraine was a major wake-up call for Europe and NATO in many different ways. Since the start of the war, for example, Germany reversed a decades-long defense policy allowing for weapons and tanks to be exported to conflict zones. Finland and Sweden moved from neutral to NATO, making bids to join the security alliance. And Canada boosted its deployment of troops to the continent through Operation Reassurance and Operation Unifier, the former based in Latvia. But for countries that border Russia, like Latvia, is that enough? I spoke with Latvian Prime Minister Kristianit Karic. Have a listen to that conversation. Hi, Prime Minister. Pleasure to welcome you to our program. Thank you very much for making the time. Pleasure to be with you. When this war started a, a year ago, did you think it would still be going on, Prime Minister, a, a year later? Uh, we had no idea. Uh, but what is clear uh, is that one year ago, uh, Putin... Uh, showed the world uh, his true intentions, which is uh, imperialism, uh, murder uh, at its very worst, worst uh, way, uh, fighting uh, in Ukraine, uh, fighting against civilians, civilian infrastructure, bringing uh, chaos uh, to a country, trying to obliterate it. Uh, what is the only good uh, side of the story is that the entire West uh, has pulled very firmly together uh, in aiding Ukraine uh, in fighting off this aggression. And I think that Canada's role 
uh, has been very important, not only in strengthening the uh, NATO presence here in Latvia, and, and very thankful that you're heading that NATO presence, but also your uh, direct contributions to helping Ukraine. Uh, that's very, very uh, much appreciated. And I do, Prime Minister, have a couple of questions about that operation in your country in just a moment. But just to circle back to what you were saying about Vladimir Putin, he again made a speech today very specifically saying that Russia would, quote unquote, pay increased attention to boost its nuclear forces on land, sea and in the air. How seriously do you take that threat? Well, I think we have to take everything uh, seriously. Russia uh, is a serious threat to uh, peace and security, not only in Ukraine and Europe, but uh, around the world. Uh, he's been doing a lot of saber-rattling this entire uh, past year, so uh, whether that means uh, there's, there's more to that, uh, no one knows. But uh, what is clear is that we, we have to uh, uh, take it at face value that Russia is not uh, looking to be uh, uh, moving out of this war uh, anytime soon, at least not uh, of its own volition. And I think that's the message that Putin has given in his speech uh, uh, just the other day, is that he's not, uh, not uh, going to be stepping back. And that means we have to be prepared for that. You, given your geographic positioning as well as your experience, are more familiar than a number of, of Western allies with sort of the way in which Russia operates, the way in which Putin operates. Have you been surprised at all at the way that Putin has reacted to increased NATO uh, strength, increased unity among those allies? Has anything that Putin has done taken you by surprise? Uh, unfortunately, no. Uh, what has come is a, is a pleasant, maybe not a surprise, but a pleasant realization is how uh, united all of us have become uh, in the face of his aggression. Uh, but uh, remember, this is a, a government, this is an individual who is basically a dictator uh, in his country. It's all about maintaining power. And when things are not going so well at home, uh, uh, war on the outside to rally to the cause of, uh, of nationalism is what they're resorting to. The, the propaganda going on within the country uh, is uh, that Russia is basically under attack and is fighting uh, a, sim a war similar to that which is in the Second World War against fascism and, and Ukraine and the West, uh, including all of us in NATO, I suppose, represent this uh, fascism, which is it's, it's meaningless from our point of view, but very meaningful within Russia. And uh, uh, Putin, it, it seems that his grip on power, uh, there's no signs that we see that it is uh, weakening, which means that we have to take this, uh, this, this uh, threat credibly uh, translated as he's not going to be backing down anytime soon. But he does understand strength. Uh, he does understand force. This is the language that he understands, not one of diplomacy, but of force. And the strengthening of NATO's position in the eastern flank is a very clear signal uh, to Putin. And of course, the support for Ukraine is an absolute necessity for all of us, because uh, in Ukraine, they are fighting and dying for the very values that we uh, live by, freedom, democracy, and the rule of law, not the rule of thuggery. I wanted to ask you about the nature of that support, because it certainly has evolved throughout the last year. Uh, in particular, uh, we now note that uh, Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky is very focused on uh, procuring fighter jets, military jets of some sort, in order to counter what is expected to be an offensive from Russia this spring. Uh, I spoke to, for example, Poland's ambassador to Canada this week, who says Poland is willing to supply MiGs, 
but delineates between, for example, the supply of tanks in that they're not willing to go it alone. This has to be, from Poland's perspective, a uh, you know, concerted effort among allies. It, it can't just be one country going alone. Do, do you have an expectation that allies will evolve to that position? Uh, or does that seem a departure, too much of a departure, uh, from where they're willing to go? Uh, I don't necessarily see that as a departure. Uh, over the past year, uh, I remember that uh, on the evening of the February 24th, we were holding a European Council meeting uh, when the attack uh, started, and we were having debates on um, who or whom we should or should not sanction as individuals, uh, let alone debates on any kind of uh, uh, unity in sending weapons. Um, one year later, everyone is sending weapons. Uh, there was talks of, you know, can you send howitzers? Yes, you can send howitzers. Can you send tanks at first? No, then now it's yes, it's tanks. So that is an evolving uh, realization and position of the Western allies. I think it's important that Western allies move in lockstep. And sometimes it takes a little bit of time to uh, everyone come to the same conclusion. But I think the conclusion is, is, is uh, on one level very clear. Uh, Ukraine must win the poor, uh, this war and uh, Putin must lose it. We cannot allow the rule-based system to uh, simply be uh, disentangled uh, right in the heart of Europe, next door uh, to, uh, to all of the European Union. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, the, the, the type of weapon, I think, is secondary uh, to the fact that, it's, that there's unity involved. And some decisions have taken time. From my country's point of view, well, we were providing weapons before the February 24th attack. We were providing the anti-aircraft weapons, the, the, the shoulder, uh, shoulder held, that were used uh, to ward, ward off the attack on Kiev in the, in the first days. Um, so we've been all in. We have given more than 1% of our GDP in terms of military aid, and we have a, a tremendous continuing groundswell of a grassroots uh, uh, aid coming in all, all, all kinds of forms. So there's, there's vehicles, there's buses, there's medical aid, et cetera, et cetera, which is coming from civil society. So we're all in, and we're very happy to see that more and more of our uh, uh, NATO partners are also going uh, all in. It's very important. Speaking of being all in and NATO, I do want to, before I let you go, Prime Minister, ask you about the operation based in your country led by Canada. Uh, when you were visiting this country last year, uh, the Prime Minister made a pledge to essentially double the contingent of um, the battle group that's there, the size of it, uh, turn it into a brigade. I know that there have been discussions, I believe, that, that have started about how many soldiers each country ends up sending. Where are those discussions at? And, and when do you expect um, sort of all of this to be finalized? Uh, first, I have to say, I think Canada's leadership, Trudeau's leadership, is fantastic and very, very uh, well appreciated uh, in Latvia. Uh, Canada has stepped up. All the other NATO partners have stepped up. Uh, we are seeing more uh, uh, soldiers and, importantly, more equipment. That is, our capabilities are greatly enhanced. Uh, my own country, we're in the process of going, uh, reintroducing conscription. Uh, we are uh, greatly increasing our military budget. We are in the purchasing stage of getting our own anti-aircraft systems and some other new systems that currently our uh, NATO allies are providing. Uh, so uh, we're moving uh, quite clearly in this direction. And uh, uh, the decisions, they're, 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 they're all coming together. And I have to say that under Canada's leadership, I have great confidence 
uh, in all of our NATO uh, allies, and especially in Canada's leadership, because what, what your country has done, that maybe not everyone in Canada understands, that you have forged a real fighting unit from 10 different NATO members. And this has actually not been done before. This is a, this is a, a true uh, uh, fighting uh, unit uh, which has been forged together. Uh, uh, it took five years to get it fully operational, but Canada did that. Now we're just in the process of increasing its size and, and capabilities. So your country's leadership has done it once. I'm absolutely convinced that they'll be able to... Uh, uh, follow through on the next uh, level. There are a number of countries, including this one, Prime Minister, um, that are facing uh, issues with the size of the military here, right? The, the pressures on the military, uh, people retiring and, and not enough recruitment. Do you have any concerns that Canada will not be able to increase its share of uh, soldiers a, as a part of this operation? Has uh, that been conveyed to you at any point? Uh, no, uh, we, we don't have this concern because, remember, for a brigade to be operational, one thing is the number of soldiers, uh, but uh, as important and almost from one aspect more importantly is are the capabilities uh, that this brigade would have. So, you know, if you have, I don't know, 5,000 soldiers uh, with only rifles, uh, that's not going to be as effective as, say, half that many soldiers, but with a full uh, range of, of, of systems that they can use. Uh, so uh, moving towards the brigade, uh, Canada is one of 10 uh, NATO members in Latvia. If all members uh, proportionally uh, move up, as Canada already has, I think that that won't be a problem. And uh, so I, I don't see that as, a, as an issue at all. And within our own country, well, we're also uh, realizing that we are at the upper limit of a, a volunteer army in terms of the numbers uh, we're actually above the proportion that, that some other uh, countries have in terms of how many people volunteer. We're not having a problem with volunteers, but that kind of system won't give us the numbers that we need for our national defense forces. So we're re reintroducing conscription, especially so that we have a, a much larger, uh, well-trained and prepared and armed uh, reserve force to be used at any time. So it, it's a process, and I think that Canada is doing a fantastic job. Prime Minister, I'll leave it on that note. Thank you very much for sharing some of your time with us today. Thank you very much. Latvian Prime Minister Kristjanic Karic there. You heard me ask the Prime Minister about Putin's latest nuclear threat. U.S. President Joe Biden was also asked about that renewed threat today. Here is what the President had to say in an interview with ABC News. It's a big mistake to do that. Not very responsible. And... Uh, but I don't read into that that he's thinking of using nuclear weapons or anything like that. I think it's a, I'm not sure what else he was able to say in his speech at the moment. But I think it's a mistake and uh, I'm confident we'll be able to work it out. Coming up, a special edition of The Front Bench with four of Canada's top foreign policy experts. Up next, though, a roundup of the political stories you need to know about today. We're back in just a few minutes. Welcome back to Power Play. We have a lot more coverage coming up to mark Ukraine's, or rather the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But right now, I want to also tell you about what's happening in politics. Today, here's the list. 
we've actually just uh, confirmed agreements in principle uh, with the four Atlantic provinces and Ontario who've said, yes, we're in for these health care deals. Let's start uh, negotiating the details on you know, how many family doctors we want to add, what we're going to be investing in mental health, how we're going to move forward to get the best possible outcomes for Canadians. You heard it there from the Prime Minister. Ottawa has reached agreements in principle on health care funding with Ontario and the four Atlantic provinces. Canada's premiers have already collectively agreed to kind of an overarching deal that will see federal health funding boosted by about $46 billion over 10 years. But the specifics won't be one size fits all. And now the federal government is holding negotiations with each province and territory for essentially bilateral deals. Google swinging hard against the federal government's proposed online news bill by blocking some 4% of Canadian users from viewing news content today. Part of a five-week pilot project, the tech giant says. The legislation the feds are putting forward would require web giants, including Google and Meta, which owns Facebook, to compensate Canadian media companies for reposting their content. The government calls Google's move, quote, disappointing. I've been in touch with uh, CSIS initially. Uh, it was approached by them because um, I, I guess they are concerned. Uh, CSIS never explained to me why they're interested to talk to, talk to me and also to solicit and, and collect information from me. But they did talk to me. And Former Conservative MP Kenny Chu, who was defeated in a Richmond, B.C. riding back in 2021, believes he was the victim of Chinese election interference. And he told this program he was approached by Canada's spy agency, CSIS, but the agency never detailed the nature of their concerns. PowerPlay sent Mr. Chu's comments to CSIS today to try and find out more about their investigation into foreign interference, but CSIS declined to respond and instead passed us to the Commissioner of Canada Elections, who did not address the specifics of our question. And check out this sky-high selfie taken by a U.S. spy plane pilot above the Chinese surveillance balloon that flew over the U.S. and Canada earlier this month. Month, rather. This image was released by the Pentagon, and it shows the plane's shadow above the balloon snap before the U.S. downed the device on February 4th. Officials are now examining the debris of that balloon, which was collected off the coast of the Carolinas. Coming up, we are going to turn back to our top story, marking the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Next, a special edition of The Front Bench featuring top foreign policy experts Roland Paris, Kerry Buck, Louise Blay, and General Andrew Leslie. They are with me after a very short break. you want to stay right there. Canada will continue to do whatever is necessary to ensure that Russia does not benefit from having illegally invaded Ukraine. We will stand with the people of Ukraine as long as it takes. I'm very optimistic as well for the fighter jets. It just needs more time. The same story was with Leopard tanks. The Germany was saying that they will, they will supply them. Where allies, Ukraine's closest partners, have done what's, uh, w what was necessary. Uh, and, uh, and that's where we are today. And this is, this, the, the discussion on fighter jets is, is, is today's discussion. 
Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, as you saw there and heard there, says his government will stand with the people of Ukraine for as long as it takes. But if the war does continue to go on, is this level of support from the Canadian government and other governments realize of our ally, realize, really rather of our allies sustainable? And what might the next phase of this war look like? Let's bring in a special edition of the Front Bench to talk about that tonight. A panel of Canada's top foreign policy and defense experts, University of Ottawa Professor Roland Paris is here. He's a former senior advisor to the Prime Minister on global affairs and defense, and served as an advisor to NATO's Secretary General. Louise Blay is a former Canadian ambassador. Ambassador to the UN. She's now an advisor to the Business Council of Canada and the Pendleton Group. Retired Lieutenant General Andrew Leslie is a former commander of Canada's Army, Chief Government Whip and Liberal MP. He's now a senior associate with Blue Sky Strategy Group. And Carrie Buck is Canada's former ambassador to NATO. She's now a senior fellow at the University of Ottawa. Hi, everybody. Really a, a great honor to have you here on this important day to uh, mark the somber anniversary and, and reflect a little bit on the last year and what's to come. Uh, Ms. Buck, I wanted to start with you. You, you heard a couple clips there from uh, both the ambassador to Ukraine and Ukraine's ambassador to Canada, on the likelihood of allies coalescing around the, the uh, need for fighter jets uh, for Ukraine. Do you expect allies to get to that point, the same point they were at a few months ago or a month and a half ago with tanks? Well, I'd be guessing, but my guess would be yes. Over the past year, we've seen important shifts. When I was at NATO, the question of lethal aid to Ukraine was not on the table. Uh, so early in the conflict, people shifted, countries shifted to say, yeah, they'll provide lethal aid. And then they moved along the course of the year and decided to give Leopard 2 tanks, uh, Abrams tanks. Um, so the conversation, as the ambassador in, her ambassador in Kiev said, is about uh, fighter jets now. So I'm guessing, yes, they'll get to that point. But NATO's deliberations are pretty careful. They want to make sure that they're not crossing that line um, where they're seen as entering into direct conflict with Russia. What is so, inter so interesting, Professor Paris, about that line is the degree to which, as Ms. Buck pointed out, it has moved over the last year. I don't think if I were asking the Minister of Defense a year ago, are we going to be buying a missile defense system for Ukraine or, um, you know, considering sending four tanks, uh, Leopard 2 tanks, the answer would have been yes. Uh, do you expect the line to keep moving and, and how difficult is it, given what Ms. Buck outlined about the concerns of involving ourselves even further? Well, I think it is going to continue moving, and it probably has to continue moving because Ukraine doesn't have a manpower advantage now uh, on the battlefield. It has to have a qualitative advantage in terms of its equipment. And, uh, you know, although um, I expect that we'll be moving in the direction of fighter jets, the discussion is often about what is the next weapon system. And I think sometimes we focus a bit too much on the particular weapon systems. If this is going to be a long, drawn-out war, and all the indications are that it might be, the side that can replenish its uh, personnel and materiel uh, most efficiently, effectively, is the side that's going to have a huge advantage. So we really need to be thinking in the big picture, not so much what the next weapon system is. Are we going to be able to continue supplying Ukraine with the weapons, with the ammunition, with the financial supports that are going to be needed for it to sustain its war effort? Uh, General Leslie, uh, jumping off that point from Professor Paris, what, in your view, is the sustainability, in particular, of the level of military aid being uh, being uh, uh, given to Ukraine? Well, across NATO, there's vast amounts of equipment and soldiers. <clears throat> the question is readiness 
whether or not the Sorry, technological I can't, capability... I, I'm not sure if everyone can hear, but I can't hear you very well. I'm not sure if there's an issue with your audio, if you're on mute. Oh. You can, okay, you can hear him okay. Okay. Uh, sorry, test, sorry test, General test. Leslie, do you mind? There you go, I got you now. Do you mind starting again? My apologies. Quite all right. Across NATO, <laughs> there's a vast reservoir of equipment and personnel. But the question is, is how ready are they? That's a function of training. And for example, getting back to Professor Paris's point, um, there's an ammunition crisis throughout NATO, especially for artillery ammunition, because of the vast expenditures of the Ukraine against the Russians. And the Russians have an ammunition crisis as well, though I have no sympathy for them. So the bottom line is that NATO can and must be doing more, but so far the contributions have worked, though perhaps not as quickly as Ukraine might wish. When we talk about those contributions uh, working, Ms. Blay, when you think about the future or the next phase of this war, uh, how, you know, how soon might they, might they work to do more for Ukraine? I mean, obviously they're working because Ukraine is outpacing every expectation placed on it throughout the last year, but they want more than just that. They want to win. Well, exactly. And I think as we've been alluding to, we find ourselves really in a war of attrition. And and I would want to say a war by proxy. I think up until recently, it was really about just Ukraine defending itself and, and, the, and the West coming to its aid. But now it's really becoming, as you've heard from uh, President Putin, he's talking now about really that as far as he's concerned, he's in a war with the West. So we really are going to have to 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 continue to be resilient, to be in it for the long run. And this will take a lot of patience and, yes, a lot of resources. And I, really looking forward, I think we also want to be careful that we have another flank to, to be watching out for. We, uh, we're really, there's a lot of, the United States is talking a lot about its worry about what might happen in the Pacific. So this is not the world that we used to live in three or four years ago. This, the world has changed. It's not as secure. And as we move forward in our support of Ukraine, I think we need to do this in a context, in a global context, and be very, very uh, wide-eyed and bright-eyed about about uh, our need to really um, arm up and and be prepared for for what the world might have next for us. Uh, speaking of what the world might have, and more specifically, Mr. Putin, uh, Miss Buck. I, I, I found this week almost um, an exercise in contradictions in a way only because he really doubled down on the nuclear threat in a couple of addresses directed towards primarily a domestic audience. But then we also saw Joe Biden, the president of the U.S., visit over the weekend. The Russians were alerted to that fact. He took a train for a number of hours and, and they didn't make a move. How do you assess the, the threat posed by Putin at this point? Well, I think the one thing we've learned about Mr. Putin from the start is that he's unpredictable. So um, figuring out what the threat is requires figuring out what he's going to do. And he's repeatedly done things that I've thought are against Russia's interest, like invade the entire country of Ukraine. Um, on the nuclear threat, he's been nuclear saber-rattling for a number of years now. There's a slight difference. He's put um, his nuclear weaponry on higher alert, his, the staff, the military staff who uh, support deployment on higher alert, and they've developed new uh, weapons. So we have to be worried. Maybe he's bluffing, maybe he's not, but regardless, we have to be worried. So that's on the nuclear threat. Um, from the beginning, when the West started flowing arms into Ukraine, 
um, Russia could have attacked some of those supply lines. They've chosen not to. I think Putin understands that um, effectively doing something like that would be effectively declaring war on NATO. That's not a good place. He's already losing in Ukraine. I don't know how much he realizes that. But doing something that would be seen as a direct attack on NATO, uh, he's, he's avoided that. Um, and we hope he'll continue to avoid that. Do you think, though, again, circling back, I know not to be specific on the weapon, but given the evolution of the types of weapons being provided to Ukraine, that becomes a bigger risk? Well, I, I think the biggest risk would be a kind of catastrophic collapse of the Russian right. military. Um, so far, you know, he was making nuclear threats months ago. Uh, he backed off the nuclear, the very direct nuclear threats, uh, perhaps not coincidentally after China and India were both saying, cool it with this military talk, uh, with this nuclear talk. Uh, it's, it's been less discussed, but it doesn't mean that it's gone away as a potential risk. Having said that, um, you know, he has made so, there have been so many strategic blunders by Russia. And it just seems again and again they have not learned from the poor experiences that they've had from the initial invasion on. Even this latest so-called offensive seems to have been launched by Russia too early when they really weren't uh, ready for it. So, uh, you know, I think that the nuclear consideration is one that's always there. The potential for escalation is always there. And that is the reason for caution in terms of uh, uh, direct NATO involvement and, and more uh, longer range weapons. But we have been seeing that line creeping and I expect it will continue to creep. General Leslie, I, I was thinking as I was talking to Professor Paris of covering this government when it first started. And, and Professor Paris, you were advising the Prime Minister, General Leslie, you were in the government. And we would have had completely you know, very different conversations about, in particular, Russia, but, but also China. And to Ms. Blaze's point and, and Ms. Buck's, the world feels like a very different place right now. And I'm wondering what you think the implications are more specifically for Canada as it shapes its foreign policy going forward about the sort of definitive way in which we now can characterize our adversaries. We've been great supporters of the rule of law. We're extraordinarily proud of our peacekeepers. And quite frankly, I don't think most Canadians are willing to invest or were willing to invest in defense tools that would keep us safer in an alliance context. Times have changed. So we have to invest in defense. We have to defend our Arctic. We have to know what's going on up there. We have to provide capabilities that are actually useful today instead of yesterday. And we have to develop a bit of a sense of urgency, which I don't see in this current government. So D&D, for example, hands back in two to three billion dollars a year that's supposed to be sent on equipment. That hasn't changed for the last eight or 10 years. So let's fix that. Let's send those troops to Latvia that we promised we would, but they should already be there. Let's send more vehicles for our troops in Latvia. Let's contribute more to the defense of Ukraine by opening the coffers instead of handing back the money to the Minister of Finance. So a little bit more, please. Uh, Ms. Blay, and I'll, I'll conclude by circling back to, to your point and jumping off what um, General Leslie said. I think that I mean, I have noticed a, a, certainly a change in rhetoric, a change in posture, I would say, from the federal government on a lot of the issues that, that General Leslie laid out. And changing their posture isn't going to be easy because of not just this government, but governments prior the level of investment in defense or, or lack thereof, for example. It's not something that's going to change overnight. Do you think, though, that the 
broader or higher level of public co um, cognizance of what's going on in Ukraine, for example, the threat Russia poses, the threat China poses, like the degree to which we talk about it as a society versus 10 years ago even, do you think that will maintain pressure on successive federal governments in this country to do the stuff that General Leslie just laid out? Well, I, I think so, absolutely. And I, I believe, you know, I, I saw a poll just recently that talked about, yes, Canadians are fully 100% behind Ukraine. But when you the questions probe into deeper into how much we should uh, send in terms of aid, money and weapons and the support goes down, we, we really do need to educate Canadians and, 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 and to let them know that our own security is completely tied up into into all of this. And, and I think that's very important. I also think that we need to bolster our diplomacy. I, I was really encouraged to mm -hmm. see what happened today at the U.N., 141 countries in support mm -hmm. of uh, the U.N. Charter and, and the sovereignty, the integrity, uh, you know, the, the, the importance to maintain integral sovereignty. And, 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 you know, you look at the number of countries that voted no, it's, it's a really small group. Um, there's a few people who didn't show and weren't in the room. But let's just uh -huh. keep working. I think Canada has a lot of pull in diplomatic circles. I, of course, from my time in the UN, I know that with Barbary there. I think there's a lot of work we could, should be doing diplomatically. But I fully agree with uh, General Leslie that we should at the same time not be uh, completely naive and make sure that we can protect our own country if, if the day came where we really needed to. And I think that's the message we should okay. be taking from this past year. Okay, on that note, I'm going to leave it there. Really appreciate the discussion this evening. Thanks so much to Roland Paris, Kerry Buck, General Andrew Leslie, and Louise Blaze. We're going to come back in just a few moments here on Power Play with today's takeaway. Stay right there. Welcome back to a special edition of our program. We are covering and marking the grim anniversary of Russia's one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Our attention now shifts to the next phase of this war and the year or the months to come. Ukraine's primary ask for that phase is for fighter jets to counter an offensive that Russia is expected to mount this spring. I had a chance to sit down this evening with uh, Ukraine's ambassador to Canada to gauge what role she thinks Canada can play in those discussions. We certainly don't have fighter jets to hand over, but we have in the past purchased, uh, for example, a missile defense system. I asked her whether uh, that was something she would consider or that's part of the discussions. Here's her answer. So we are trying to find now this place, how to make it uh, most efficient out of our discussion for the fighter jets. And this conversation is now going among many of the, the allies because mostly we are talking about F-16 fighter mm -hmm. jets. Uh, uh, that is what Canada does not have. Uh, so that, but there, the window for any creative decision, Ukraine, of course, will appreciate. That's Ukraine's ambassador to Canada. She says, as you heard there, she does see Canada playing a, quote, creative role in the supply of fighter jets to Ukraine. Uh, Canada so far has contributed $1 billion of military aid to Ukraine. That does it for a special edition of Power Play. I'll hand things over to my colleague, Morella Fernandez, now. Have a great evening.